0: Hello and welcome to Nutrition Unfiltered, a podcast where science meets sass. I am Christy Maloney, registered dietitian and eating disorder specialist. This is a place where we talk nutrition, ask the hard questions, and have some fun along the way. I'm so glad you're here. Hello again and welcome back to Nutrition Unfiltered. Today I have the honor of having my good friend, my employee, all around wonderful human being, Allie Richardson, with me. So, Allie, when we dive in, first of all, just tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your background. Well, first of all, thank you. <laughs> I just love and adore you.
1: Yes. So, hello, everyone. I'm Allie. So, a little background on me from, like, I guess my career standpoint I went to Iowa State University for my undergrad. Graduated there and then did my internship through Keith and Associates distance dietetic internship. Long name. But so I did clinical rotations in Oklahoma. Fun fact, lived in a hospital during my clinicals because housing was a nightmare. I don't know. Did I ever tell you that?
0: I had no idea. You lived in the hospital. Yes. That's commitment.
1: Oh my gosh. Long story short, my housing situation got like so messed up. Cause they had to like switch hospitals that I was in and all of a sudden I was in this like super rural area that didn't have like short-term apartment leases or anything or like I didn't know anyone there. So they were like, you can just live in one of the hospital rooms. Oh my gosh, it was crazy.
0: <laughs> I've never heard of that before. Like I feel like I've heard of most things yeah. and I've never heard of that. So that is yeah. a fun fact.
1: Fun fact, yes, it was crazy. And then they won't let me stay over the weekends, rightly really, so I didn't drive home. I have to drive six hours home. It's crazy. Back to Iowa.
0: Wow. <laughs> Sorry. I'm like, wow. wow,
1: welcome to the podcast. Here's a podcast. Yeah, fact. welcome to the
0: podcast. Glad you <laughs> um, don't live in a hospital anymore. <laughs> seriously.
1: But then, so then I went to Charlotte for the other half, and that is where I met you. Mm-hmm. Just loved your style, loved your practice. That's when I fell in love with eating disorders. And so from there, I finished up my internship in Charlotte. Then I started working at a hospital that you worked at um, to get some clinical experience, was like so ready to get out of that and messaged you and was like, hey, are you looking to expand your new practice? And
0: now here we are, almost four years later. Almost four years later. And I will tell anybody, Allie is the reason I have a group practice because I never really Kind of saw that, and then Allie came on, and like here we are now, six dietitians yes. in. So it's it's been great. It's been great. Oh,
1: forever grateful. It's so fun. I love so
0: yeah. So Allie in our practice is our ARFID specialist. So today's podcast, it hopefully is a little bit of education for professionals on what is ARFID? You know, I feel like it's one of those that a lot of people just don't understand. Or if they have a basic understanding, they feel like it's very scary to treat. And so Allie has really taken on, you know, treating this particular population, and has a lot of good education, training insights on on just working with someone with ARFID. So first and foremost, Allie, give us a little overview of like, what is ARFID? What exactly is that?
1: Yes. So ARFID is avoidant food, avoidant (laughs) restrictive food intake disorder. I always get my letters mixed up, but yes, that's, (laughs) that's what it stands for. And so really any age range can have this happen to them. Typically we'll start in toddlerhood and then can go into adulthood. A lot of times this gets labeled as quote unquote picky eating, but it's more complex than that. And it tends to kind of slip through the cracks a lot more in younger kids than kind of what's realized. So catching it sooner rather than later will just only help your clients, your child later on in
0: life. So yeah, that's just kind of the background of it. Perfect. So if you're looking to to catch it early, Mm -hmm. right, what exactly would you be looking for? How would you know the ARFID is sort of presenting itself?
1: Yeah. So if we think about toddlers just in general okay every toddler is going to go through a quote-unquote picky eating stage during that stage if you keep introducing foods like broccoli strawberries blueberries things that squirt things that have different textures right yes you know toddlers not going to love those but eventually they're going to see you eating it they will start to eat it learn how to deal with those different tastes and textures if your toddler is or child is really struggling and is like, yeah, that tastes icky on my mouth. That's a really intense flavor for me. Then that's when I encourage if they're seeing a therapist or a food therapist or um, parent to kind of encourage the questions of like, well, tell me what that tastes like. Does that taste sour? Does it taste crunch or does it feel crunchy and soft at the same time? Do you not like the two textures together? And really kind of getting on their level of. Understanding what that feels like on their mouth. Because mm-hmm. there are things called super tasters. And so they taste flavors a lot more intensely than just like your average person or average kid. So when something tastes sweet, it can taste really, really sweet. Or if something tastes bitter, it'll taste really, really bitter. So broccoli is a bitter vegetable. I'm just using this one because it's a very common ARFID, like no no food. Sure. So that is one like it tastes really bitter if it's not cooked with enough fat. It doesn't help coat the tongue, and so then it's all around like it's crunchy. Part of it's soft. Part of it is like leafy and flakes off, and it's all these different textures in their mouth. But it's also a couple different flavors, and they're like, yeah, I can't do this. Spit it out. They tend to spit out a lot of food, or with, and then with that, then they go to their basics. A lot of times, that's chicken nuggets. Potato of some sorts, so a french fries, mashed potatoes, or a roasted potato, um, peeled apples, biscuits, plain buttered noodles like very just like plain foods that are safe, that are consistent. That's why when you look at like, will they eat a fruit? Probably not, because fruits are variable, whereas a Ritz cracker is the same every single time. So that's just kind of like a few little points just to kind of look out like, hmm, is this happening a lot with my kid and are they afraid to venture out kind of thing.
0: Right, and when you think about sensory overload and the way you describe Mm -hmm. the broccoli, there might be two or three textures. There might be very Mm -hmm. intense bitter flavor. So for somebody, and especially... You know, people that maybe are on the spectrum, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. have ADHD or neurodivergent that have sensory, I won't call them issues, but just really mm-hmm. high sensory stimulation. Mm-hmm. That is one of those things that we can really see. What do you think about like that population and, you know, how that plays into just kind of overall the sensory stimulation? And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I guess what I'm trying to ask is like, if a kid is very, like auditory stimulated right maybe they they can't deal with loud noises or really like bright lights or that kind of thing how often do you see this playing into that population
1: very it's very very common if you're somewhere on the spectrum very common that you're going to have some sort of sensory overload with food at, in some way shape or form or an intense fear of it in some way shape or form so like, again, I'm just going to keep using broccoli because it is the one food that every <laughs> one of my RFID clients is like, absolutely not. If you think about it, especially if someone's very sensitive to loud sounds, and if you have a crunchy piece of broccoli, holy cow to them, that is like so intense and so loud. So really when you're thinking about exposing them to that food, which I'll get into more of a second, you almost need to have that like broccoli, like overcooked, so soft, so the crunch won't be intense for them. But in this population, you, I notice you have to take it very, very slow. And that can be really tough for some parents and other professionals too, because it has to be such a slow process because their brains just work a little different and that's totally okay. But it's just a much slower process because change for them is a very, can only be small doses and they have to know what to expect. So when things kind of come up unexpectedly, it makes them nervous. Can have outbursts they were you know revolve on their stemming to kind of get them back and it can just be very a very delicate balance you just have to learn how they process and deal with things which can take a couple months when you first start with a client to understand how do they process things is this something I can lay on and push or do I need to back off them more and let them sit with this for a little bit just as with any client you just have to be a little bit more delicate when you have a client that's on the spectrum.
0: And I think that's a really great point. If you... (laughs) <laughs> our beloved broccoli. Mm-hmm. If you have that, if someone is eating raw broccoli, there is a crunch, there is a texture, there mm-hmm. is a smell, there is a taste. That's mm-hmm. four different senses that we have mm-hmm. engaged. And mm-hmm. so kind of to your point, it's like, okay, so how do we reduce as many senses as possible being stimulated, right? Like if we're working on texture, is there anything we can do to help, like you said, the, the auditory? Is there anything we can do to help with even the smell Of cooked broccoli, you know what can we do to sort of alleviate those other things so it's not complete sensory overload? Mm -hmm. I'd never thought about it that way. So thank you for enlightening me on that. Hey, you're welcome. This is my jam. So (laughs) I'm here for it. (laughs) I love it. So if we're thinking about, you know, a, a dietitian because this this particular episode is geared toward. ARFID and the professional treatment of ARFID. So when a client comes in, how would they assess for ARFID, right? So parents might bring in a kid for picky eating. How do we know if it's just we haven't tried a lot of foods versus it's this type of eating disorder? Yeah,
1: so I use the DSM-5 criteria a lot just as a base. That doesn't mean that, as we know with any eating disorder, doesn't mean it covers every single person every single time, but I use it as a base. So a lot of times I will frame questions around that criteria. You know, are they, are they low body weight? Are they having failure to thrive? Are they relying on a nutrition supplement to make sure they're getting enough calories in? That's just like a very foundational basis. Okay, so maybe they do meet that. Maybe they don't. So from there, I, I go through an initial assessment. I said, How do you feel about trying new foods? Does that scare you? Does it make you nervous? What are, what are kind of some of your thoughts and feelings, if they can articulate it? Go from there, and then from there, we probe other questions. Okay, so when you try bread, just plain white bread, how does that make you feel? Does that make you feel safe? Now, if I were to toast the bread, how does that make you feel? Mmm, does it, you get nervous about cutting your gums? Okay, so then that's another like, oop, that's our fit. Do all toasted things make you nervous? Yes or no? Do sharp edges on chips make you nervous? how do you feel swallowing? Do you over-chew your food? Do you under-chew your food? Have you ever choked before? Do you have a fear of vomiting, right? It's all these other things that are kind of probing questions to them that a lot of times will lead down to ARFIT. Oh yeah, I remember when I choked when I was seven. And so I get really, really scared if I don't over-chew my food, which can then lead to exhaustion during a meal, which leads to under-eating a lot of times. So it's all these different factors. But so when a client comes in, I start with that, it's kind of those basic DSM-5 questions. But then from there, I just ask about how they eat and then kind of ask other probing questions about the fear of eating. Are you scared if your gums get cut? Are you scared of choking, gagging? All those things.
0: Are there outside of those things? So gums getting cut, choking, gagging, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Are there other consistent fears that you notice most of the time that someone mm-hmm. might have?
1: Yeah. Great question. Yes. Yes. So a lot of times, I'll use yogurt for an example on this one. A lot of times yogurt is accepted because it's one consistency, right? If you just think plain vanilla yogurt, one consistency, it's smooth. The minute you add chunks, mm, no. So like adding like a strawberry yogurt, not always accepted because there's chunks of strawberry or if you want to add granola. When you add two different consistencies, that becomes a no-no and that becomes really hard. One of the things that has really come up a lot recently is that we've kind of broke through with a lot of clients is them like they search for the imperfection in with in their mouth with their tongue and this tends to be kind of your older population of RFID, so like later teens into adults they're because they've been doing it for so long they're searching for the imperfection so they can spit it out if they don't want to or they know this is the part that i didn't like rather than how you and i chew we kind of keep everything together and then we swallow as a bolus, you know, that whole food item together. Whereas a lot of times in ARFID, it starts to get separate. So They'll separate the yogurt from the granola or the skin of the blueberry from the inside of the blueberry. And so that can be tricky to kind of have to help them relearn how to chew, which tend to want to have a speech therapist kind of get involved in there too, just to kind of help them oral as well.
0: Yeah. And so that, and I know you do this a lot, is a really great time to actually have a snack or a meal with a Mm -hmm. client to see. So when you're doing that very targeted exposure therapy, Mm -hmm. what does that look like? And kind of, you know, what things um, are you bringing up? What are you working on in those sessions?
1: Yeah. So a lot of times I really do this in like the first or second session is I have this, I have this huge food list and we go in together Hey, what foods are accepted? What foods do you just kind of feel neutral about? They're not super scary, but you don't love them. And then we have the absolutely avoided foods or foods that terrify you to try. So we kind of put everything in those categories and they have complete control over that. That's No one's influencing it, just how they feel about it. So then from there, we usually start with the foods that they like and pair it with a neutral food. So I like to start with food exposures right away And they're in complete control and complete in the driver's seat. They get to manage everything right at the beginning because they need to feel like they can trust this process. So let's say they love buttered noodles, but cheese kind of gives them a weird consistency on their tongue, but they kind of, they like cheese when it's melted, but not all the time. It's kind of one of those neutral foods for them. So... We start with buttered noodles the first session. We talk about how that feels. And then maybe the next time I say, okay, we're going to add just some mozzarella cheese on top of one noodle. How does that feel? Is that scary? What does it smell like? What does it feel? We'd start with those senses first outside of the mouth. And then if they feel like they can, then we actually try that food together. We have it sit on their tongue if they can. Um, They're allowed to spit it out. And then we talk about what it felt like, what it tasted like. Did that bring up anxiety or did it actually, after you put it on your mouth, did it decrease your anxiety? Like, oh, this actually made this taste better and kind of work through those stages. So that is kind of, in a way, food mapping, kind of, if they have a goal of like, I really want to like all pasta. Well, we start with where they're at and then we work our way there, however fast or slow that they're willing to go. And then we may do butter noodles and mozzarella cheese for like six sessions. Okay, that's totally cool. But however we, however many times they need to do it to not feel anxious about it. One of the things I always tell my clients too, it can take up to 40 times plus for you to actually decide if you like a food or not, especially with our fit. And that can it's not just necessarily eating one noodle at a time, right? But it's 40 different exposures. So maybe you're trying different types of noodles with butter and cheeses and things like that in order for you actually to make a decision at whether you like this or not, which that's a lot of times to try something.
0: That is a lot of times. And especially if time one feels really hard and overwhelming to come back mm-hmm. for time two, hopefully it feels a little bit better than time one, but it still kind of doesn't feel great mm-hmm. to, to keep that. That going, I mean, that is exhausting physically and mentally. So mm-hmm. it does. I mean, your approach really is one of empathy and patience, which I think is what makes you really great at working with this population because you have to have those things in order to get through. <laughs> if we've got to do something 40 times, there has to mm-hmm. be empathy and patience in- involved.
1: Mm-hmm. That is typically where I see some parents get frustrated. They're like, we've been at this for a really long time. And so I always just tell my parents, this is a process. Every eating disorder is different. We Some foods still go super fast through. Other foods will go super slow. And that's okay. It just kind of just trusting in the process. And we want them to be able to eat a wide variety of foods because as we all know, we're all, you know, dietitians here. We know that's important for our gut health and mental health our overall health, all the things, right? Having a wide variety because that it helps us to go out to eat with friends and enjoy food to the fullest and all the things. But it can be a long process and it can be a quick process. It really just, it's very client dependent.
0: Yeah, it depends on, yeah, what they want mm-hmm. for themselves. And I think that's one thing, and and I am guilty of this, of like, what I want for you is to be able to go out and eat all foods in any situation and not have anxiety. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's a bit utopian, I think. But I think a lot of it is self-driven by the client of like, where do they want to get to have the quality of life that they want to have? And I feel like that varies for everybody. Yes, very much so.
1: I mean, this in a nice way, it's a very cool disorder because it is so driven by just so many different things. And like the want behind getting better is so different for everybody. It's, it's just very fascinating to work with.
0: Yeah, absolutely. If we're thinking about having different exposures, Mm-hmm. When would some? When would a, an RD or a provider know when to like abort mission in a session, right? Mm-hmm. Like when is it too mm-hmm. far? And if the client ca- can't articulate that, how would you know?
1: Well, typically tears would be shed if the anxiety level is too high. So that is like kind of very nonverbal response of like, I can't do this. Before you start any food exposure, always ask the anxiety level. You need to ask... To make sure that they're feeling okay. Chris, you sent us a while back, the sud scale, so I tend to use that a lot with my clients of just kind of regulating where are you at with your anxiety? Are we at a seven? Are we at a six? Typically, if they're more than a five or six, depending on the client and how well they can cope with their anxiety, we will do the food exposure. Some clients can't go above a four, because then it'll spiral to a 10 or, you know, they'll, they'll completely break down. But I always ask their anxiety level. And if they feel like they can do this without having anxiety or panic attack, if the answer is, yes, I can do this. I can talk this through with you. I feel supported. Okay. We're going to do it. If it's, I feel like if I do this, I may need some skills to help kind of talk me down if I'm, as the food's sitting in my mouth. And then other times it's like, can I, can I just touch this and smell this today? I really don't think that I can put this in my mouth right now because there may be other external factors that are going on too. Maybe there's a loud dump truck outside, right? Or other life things that are going on. They just feel like this is going to put them over the edge and that's okay. Because just smelling it and touching it is helping them get used to the texture for their tongue and their, you know, chewing and all that stuff. So I really never go past a seven. Seven is my absolute hard stop. But then very much client dependent, they're under that. And if a client is getting emotional, very quiet, I feel like starting to disassociate a bit, I typically won't do the food exposure. We'll just kind of talk about it. Talk about why this is causing this reaction to happen.
0: Right. And so you mentioned the SUDS scale. So SUDS is an acronym for subjective units of distress. And so that is a gauge of measuring overall anxiety, like you were talking about. Can you tell us a little bit about the numbers in the Sud scale and like when you're referencing a four or a seven, what that means?
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. I'm not going to lie to you. I need to pull up all the things, but typically <laughs> a four is like, I can deal with it. It's causing me a little bit of anxiety, but it's not going to put me into a panic. It's more just like I can feel maybe my heart be increasing slightly Maybe no perspiration or anything, but just like a little bit more anxious, maybe blood pressure is raising up a little bit. You get to more five and six, it's, I try to put like tactical things with this. I'm like sweating. That's one of them, you know, <laughs> um, when you get to like a five or six, maybe I'm trying to think of like a specific client example. Like I know one of my clients starts to like bounce her leg just as like she starts to get nervous, not as like a caloric burn thing with other eating disorders, but this is, that's like her stemming. That's her way to help deal with some of the anxiety, like kind of releases some of that anxiety and tension for her. You may notice a little more fidgeting, potentially some sweating depending on the client, their nervous level. And then a seven is where they're starting to feel more like that true panic set in, but they're not completely shutting down from it because that's more of like a 10. I'm going to, I'm not going to be okay. Like this is going to cripple me for the rest of the day kind of thing. A seven is more like, I may start to cry. I may start to feel really anxious, maybe start to get a little irritable kind of thing. Am I explaining this right?
0: No, that, that completely is perfect. Yes. Okay.
1: I was like, do I need to give more (laughs) examples of this? But yes, no. So that's typically how I break
0: yeah. So anything seven or above, mm-hmm. we're probably not going to do the actual exposure that day, but six mm-hmm. or below, we're going to try to work through some of it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what are your, as we have like our last few minutes, what are your top three tips for treating ARFID? Yes. So
1: I am, depending on the age level, I'm a huge believer in like including the family. So if it's under 18, or even over 18, depending on college age, like including the family, because family support is really important here because there is so much anxiety around mealtime and trying new foods that having family support is crucial. So, involving families or partners, if you're, you know, an adult living on your own, just involving the, your support system is a huge, it's like number one, gotta make sure we have a great support system. The second thing is, like I had said, that food list that to help base your exposures from food exposures are going to be your best friend in this because that is the only way to help decrease it from quote unquote triggering them every single time they see it, smell it, try to taste it. So food exposures are my bread and butter. And Mm -hmm. like I said, we do it at the pace of the client, which brings me to point three, do it at the base, the pace of your client You cannot force this on them. It cannot be a cookie cutter, as with any eating disorder is not cookie cutter, or anything with health in general. So you have to really base your treatment approach on what that client is needing when. Just because it worked for one client doesn't mean it's going to work for another, but really meeting them where they're at, meeting them at the pace that they are at. And as a provider, you don't need to be working harder than them. You just need to meet them where they're at and give little nudges when needed. But yeah, so those are like my top three.
0: That's awesome. So what would you say to a provider that maybe is feeling, you know, it could be somebody that's trained in eating disorders or wants to learn more about eating disorders, that's feeling that sort of like anxiety of like, oh, this this one is a little different. It's one of the newer diagnoses. Like, Mm -hmm. what would you say to that person that's wanting to build their knowledge and confidence, I guess, really in treatment?
1: Yeah. I feel like this is definitely like a follow your gut. Type of thing too, but there there's some really good resources. I like a book that I found on Amazon. Let me grab it. It's ARFID, but it's actually a it's a guide for parents and carriers, so just providers. And I think it just kind of gives a good background of what is ARFID, what people can do to support ARFID. So and it's a it's a quick book. It's not super long, and it has like a few diagrams and stuff in it just to kind of help you understand like why their brain is thinking the way that it is, why. They may be tasting things differently than you are. I don't know. Could we link it in the yeah, show yeah, notes or something? yeah? And what's yeah. the
0: name of it again?
1: It's just RFID Avoidant. Oh, literally, literally just RFID. Tape. Okay, yeah. yeah. And it's a guide for parents <laughs> and 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 caregivers, um, clinicians. Yeah, but yeah. We can link it, and it's on the Amazon, so perfect. Should be a perfect quick delivery. But, so that's one. But then also reaching out to other providers. Like one of um, the providers in Charlotte and I usually work pretty close together. With a lot of, we share just a lot of RFID clients or their practice, and I do just because we know how each other work. We've talked a lot about RFID. I've learned from them, they've learned from me. And I just, I've reached out to a lot of people to ask about it. I've re- listened to a lot of podcasts just about childhood nutrition, especially to kind of get a better understanding of like what's nor- quote unquote normal for a child, toddler, kid to go through eating wise and maybe what's a little abnormal. So really just allowing yourself time to learn and grow as with any eating disorder. It can't learn everything overnight, but the more exposure you have, the more clients you take on with it, the more you'll learn about it too.
0: Yeah. I really like that. Like kind of foundational, really thoroughly educate yourself on what like you said, normal in quotes, normal childhood Mm -hmm. feeding looks like. So then you can differentiate between like, okay, this is starting to feel like a little bit, not that. And it gives Mm -hmm. you a really good basis of comparison. Mm -hmm. All right, cool. Excellent tips. So thank you so much for being on today. I feel like this was really informative. I learned a lot from you. So it's been really great. We appreciate your time and your wisdom. Thank you so much for having me. I loved it. All right. You're welcome. Thank you for joining me today on Nutrition Unfiltered. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share with others that might enjoy it as well. You can follow me on Instagram at eatingdisorderdietitian. Thanks for getting sassy with me.